This presentation is from UX Australia 2016, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Get the juices flowing. But yeah, over to you, Ruth. <laughs> okay, good morning. How's everyone feeling today? No, no not too many hangovers? The but thank you for coming out at 9.30. When I first saw this time slot, I was like, oh my God, 9.30 on a Friday morning. So thank you for being here. My name's Ruth. Um, I'm one of the principal user researchers at PwC, and I'm really passionate about research and design. Now, I'm really, I get really excited when I talk about this stuff, and I talk really quickly. So I'm trying to slow down, and so I need your help. If, you, if I say stuff and you go, what the hell is she saying? Feel free to stick up your hand and go, Ruth, please slow down, or what the hell, what's that? <laughs> Repeat it again. You know, we're, very, we're a very collaborative bunch here, so I love it. Okay. Um, I was in the movies recently um, to watch Star Trek. Please don't judge. <laughs> it actually wasn't too bad. It wasn't as bad as people said it was. I can see some judging going on. <laughs> um, and we're trying to work out which popcorn to buy. Everybody, anybody had this issue before? They give you multiple sizes. You go, what the, which ones? Um, so what I might do is, because it's morning, let's do a little bit of a quick warm-up exercise. I'm sorry to those who've got coffees and laptops, but I can get everyone to stand up really quickly. Just a bit of a warm-up. <laughs> Sit down if you're by the $3 popcorn. How are the $6.50? Sit down if you're going to buy the $6.50 popcorn. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> and those same remaining, stand up if you're going to buy the $7 popcorn. Okay, so quite a few. Okay, thank you. You can all sit down now. So, what is going on over here? When you present popcorn, um, oh, you've got the 361. When it's presented in this particular way, most people will pick the cheaper option. It looks like a good deal. We just spent a fortune on buying movie tickets. Go, yeah, $3, good deal. And $7 looks really expensive. But when you present it oops, in this particular way, this looks like a really good deal. And this is actually known as a decoy effect. And you can see this being used, say, in the Telstra website over here, which, over here. So you can see the, the dominant um, option they want to give you here. It's this big one in big colours. And it looks like a great deal, $40 a month. They've also got this thing called 50, which is the medium and the large, which are decoy effects here to get you to actually buy the, the big one in the middle. So a decoy effect is a cognitive bias. So what is a cognitive bias? It is actually a mental shortcut that our brain takes to make sense of the world around us. Right? We do, there's so many things going on, and we evolve over time to actually process information in a way to help us get through life. Otherwise, we're going to be stuck doing analysis paralysis. I mean, I have trouble trying to pick toothpaste out of the supermarket as it is. So you know, we, have, we can develop all these mental shortcuts and heuristics to help us get through life a bit easier. But um, sometimes, you know, these cognitive biases can create a bit of a faulty judgment process. And this is where the cognitive biases um, can come into effect. So we are all human. And as human, we have inherent biases um, that exist. And it, for us, as researchers, we need to know what are, what are these biases that affect us so we can actually try to mitigate against them. And failing to account for this can actually cause quite a lot of issues in our research projects, especially when you're making really big decisions on the research that we're doing. So what happens? if we were to do some faulty research and our cognitive biases come into play. So let me tell you a story about New Coke. Is anybody familiar with New Coke? Oh, okay, excellent. <laughs> so New Coke, this is a story of how Coca-Cola lost millions of dollars on some faulty research. 
Now, back in the 1980s, um, Coca-Cola, they, they were having this massive decline in their sales. They were losing up against Pepsi, um, who was winning the market share. So Coca-Cola knew, they said, look, taste is actually the defining factor for us in selling our particular beverage. So what they did was they went out and, and they thought it was time to introduce a new product into the market, and they we're going to call it New Coke. So they went out and did blind taste tests with over 200,000 Americans. Now, in their blind taste tests, more than half the participants actually said, yes, we prefer New Coke over original Coke and Pepsi. So based on this, um, Coca-Cola went, oh, that's excellent. We've got the evidence we need. We're going to go and release this product onto the market. So they did. What they didn't anticipate was the uproar that happened when this, when this occurred, because what they had done was they withdrew the original formula from the market. Now, at the, during the research, they didn't actually tell the participants that they were anticipating pulling off the original product and replacing it. People thought that this new product was coming in in addition to the original flavour. And based on that, the amount of calls that hit their phone lines just skyrocketed. It, skyrocketed. it went all over the news. People were upset. It was in protest. Bring Coke back. So... They did. They brought it back as Coke Classic. And they eventually had to withdraw New Coke from the market um, because it was such a failure. There was all these conspiracy theories about, oh, was it just a marketing ploy? But it was interesting because it was actually based on, on this research that was done. So how do we apply it to our design research? I'm going to share some of these stories from the preparation, the, analysis, the running and analysis, and see how Coke devices can affect us. So since preparing for research, um, so quite a few years ago, I was helping to run a research study for the library, which is an awesome place in Canberra, and we were trying to analyse and look at the effectiveness of the catalogue that they have on their website, which you can use to find things within the library. You can use it from home, or you can use it in the library. So we were a bit short of times, you know, like always, everybody else, and we ended up doing a web survey and asking for participants to take part in our research. And we got a bunch of people that put their hands forward and we got to use them and got a whole bunch of really interesting research. So we recruited purely through this channel. Now you go, okay, that's kind of normal, right? That's what people do. But what's going on over here? So we found a lot of great insights, but um, this is actually part of a bias called selection bias. That's when you can, you can potentially create, um, you know, by self-selecting or selecting a, a types of people from a sample, you might actually create this sample bias. And in this particular case, because we use the online channel as our only means, what we were actually doing was missing on an opportunity because the library catalogue is actually used by a lot of people in the library who don't actually wander in from the website, right? They actually show up and they go to a computer there and they might use the computer there. So we end up having to go back and do a bit of research and actually walk around the library and actually find participants on the floor to, to actually um, find another way of um, getting a bit more data as well. And also that yielded a bunch of interesting insights that was different to what we saw on the online research. Um, another example of selection bias uh, is when you, you actually sample people at certain points of the year. So think about text, when you do text time, right? Um, if you're going to do research at text time, you might get a very different result to other times of the year. I'm currently on this project at the moment about childcare. And earlier this year, we actually did a bunch of discovery research in around the February, March timeframe. So we went out and talked to parents about their experience using childcare. And this subject kept coming up, this topic, they're saying, oh, Ruth, this rebate, this pain point for us is this childcare rebate runs out. And we might either have to reduce the amount of childcare we use for the rest of the financial year, or I have to take leave 
and so I can go and look after my child. I was going, oh wow, that sounds a bit of a terrible pain point. And this kept coming up. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. So we went back with the team, did a bit of analysis, and realized, oh, it's a major pain point because childcare rebate generally runs out around this time of the year every year. So if we had done the research other times of the year, we probably would have discovered a bit more other kind of pain points that would have been at the forefront of people's minds. So we had to account for that in our analysis. So in terms of dealing with it, how do we deal with selection bias? Is use a mixture of channels. Um, so use a mix of recruitment companies, social media, and trusted networks. Don't rely just on your personal networks or just one form of channel. Try to, try to diversify. It gives you a good sampling there as well. Uh, avoid professional respondents. So one day I showed up to a focus group I was running years ago. I don't really do focus groups nowadays, but I showed up and I was saying, hello, nice to meet you. These, these participants walked in and they started greeting each other by name. I was going, how, how do they know them? I, I, I don't know. It's Melbourne that small? Do people just know everybody else? Because camera's pretty small. Um, and I found out later on that these people are actually professional respondents. And like I said to the recruiter, please don't take, give me anybody that's done research in the last six months. Obviously, didn't check the screener, because, <laughs> you know, properly enough. Because, you know, if you're getting people who make a living, a part-time living, out of doing market, you know, doing research and market research, they actually create a bit of a bias in us and our data as well. So make sure you use very careful screeners and try to screen for behaviours as well. So not just, you know, kind of a mix of male and female, please, 20% uh, in between this demographic and another 20% there. Actually look at the behaviour um, that you're trying to test for. Okay, so when we're running research sessions, how does biases kick in here? Now, many years ago, I was, um, <laughs> I was running a research session with this parent who, well, a parent research, but she was telling me about this particular form she was filling in about the trials and tribulations of being a parent. Now, on this particular paper form we were filling in, there was this section that was quite contentious because we thought it was going to be very problematic. Um, so she was filling it in, and she, as she got closer to this part of the form, I started doing this, leaning in. Just, I don't want to fall off the stage. <laughs> I started leaning in. And then she started talking about, and then she saw me leaning in, and she started talking more and more and more about this particular bit of the form and how hard it was. And I was like, that's really interesting. Oh, wow, yeah, I didn't, know, didn't expect that. I was trying to be empathetic, so I was going, look at my facial expressions, I really get where you're coming from. Um, and then she, and she spent a good part, of, and I think about a good 10 minutes just on that section, and I went back, oh, this bit is actually quite problematic, wasn't it? So what was going on there? <laughs> so run, when you're running research sessions, um, there's this thing called observer expectancy effect. It's this tendency when um, as ex, you, know, you have a particular belief um, or assumption that um, that you think it's happening, and then you're going to try to in, you subconsciously influence that result. So in this particular case, you keep using facial expressions. Ah, oh, that's excellent. Oh, oh, that, oh that's terrible, wasn't it? You know, the tone of voice, um, the body language, the leaning in, that actually affects the results of the test. So I did a lot. I've been doing things. I, I make all these mistakes all the time. Even now, I kept, kept going, oh, really? Uh-huh. Yeah, that was really good. And it's, you know, scribbling down notes. When you're writing something, you stop writing. And then they say something again, interesting, you start writing it down again. And they could look and go, am I doing something wrong? Yeah, what's what? And they kind of see what you're writing. So all those kind of behaviours we have to be really careful of. And I think it really iterates that as researchers, our skill sets we have is actually quite important to really hone this kind of skill set. I mean, and people tell me, oh, Ruth, what are you doing? Oh, anyone can do that, right? Just talking to people. It's easy. Um, you must have heard that a lot. <laughs> and I have this even in the last few months, people going, oh, 
if anyone can just walk in and just do that. But this is the kind of problem we're trying to deal with. How do we cater for this kind of bias that happens? And one of the issues we have to worry about is how do we actually frame our questions in research? So in this particular study by Loftus and Palmer, they were back in the 70s. Loftus does a lot of interesting research around memory. Good, have, a, have a read of her research papers. But in this particular case, she was actually looking at the use of language. So they were asking a bunch of participants, um, they showed them some videos about an accident that's happened. And they asked participants about how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other. And participants would give an estimate. Now, they also did the uh, same experiment, but this time they tried changing the words. So they used collided, bumped, and contacted. And as you can imagine, that change of that one word caused a different estimate to be, to be given. So the, the smash actually gave the highest because it sounded really emotive and it smashed. And it just shows that the, the language is actually really crucial. So if we're going to deal with this, we need to make sure we triangulate our research, right? So what we mean by that is use multiple research methods. Um, we're also going to need to, and I, prefer, I really love observational methods. So for me, contextual inquiry, I love it. I could do it all the time, <laughs> just every day. Professional stalking, no, not professional stalking. Uh, I mean, it's just it's so fun. Um, but also, when you're out there doing research, engaging with people, we want to keep that kind of positive, neutral body language, you know, keeping keep on top of your language, the tone of voice, um, and feel like maybe I get so excited about things, I have to try to rein it back in the sessions. <laughs> Because I just want to go, oh, yeah, just tell me more. This stuff is so great. Um, yeah, and also avoid leading questions. And I'm terrible at doing that. I always, have to get, I always have to go back and review my discussion guide all the time and get somebody else to review it with me to make sure that I'm not asking leading questions. Because sometimes I get so caught up in the subject matter. You know, it's good to get somebody who's got fresh eyes and say, oh, Ruth, actually, you know, you need to double-check that. Okay, I need a volunteer. Can somebody... We'll have to join on stage. Oh, fantastic. Head straight up. That's <laughs> good. So thank you very much for coming up. Some hello. <laughs> okay, what I'm going to do is I am going to give you a three-number sequence. And I need you to, I have a rule in mind that these three numbers actually meet. So I need you to actually try to figure out this rule. And you can do that by giving me three numbers. And I'll say, yes, it meets the rule. No, it doesn't. And just keep doing that. Until you, feel, until you feel you know what the rule is, or you've got a good idea what the rule is, and then tell me what that rule is. So just throw me three numbers. So the three numbers, sorry, I should tell you that my three numbers are two, four, and eight. So you're going to throw me three numbers, um, and then we can keep going until you're quite confident about that, what that rule is. Three, six, and twelve? Three, six, and twelve, yes, that meets the rule. Do you want to, are you confident what the rule is, or do you want to throw another three numbers? Okay, I'm going to tell you what the rule is. So the rule is that each number divides into the next. Okay, for those that can't hear, um, do you understand that the, each number, oh, sorry, <laughs> each number divides, divides into, the into the next equally? Yeah. No, that does not meet the rule. Okay. I'm on the right lines, though. <laughs> what do you think? This is not a test. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I need another coffee. <laughs> yeah. um, so, is somebody bring a coffee? <laughs> yeah. Any three numbers? There's, 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 um, this is not a test. <laughs> any, any three numbers? 10, 20, 40. Um, that, does, that, that, that does meet the rule. <laughs> or you can keep throwing numbers as well if you, if you, if you like. <laughs> 1, 2, 
One, two, four. One, two, four. Yes, that meets the rule. Okay. So the rule is. Um, no, that's not no, the rule. The rule. <laughs> <laughs> do, do, help me. do you want to get a, a call from the audience? Help from the audience. Yeah. Phone line. Phone a friend. Phone a friend. <laughs> Any friends? One times, one times two times four. One times two times four. One times two times four. No, that does, oh sorry, easy, that's not the rule. Oh, we got sorry, we got one here. Then we go over there, Amir. No, that's not the rule. <laughs> yeah, that's a good. That's a good one. And yes, um, neg negative one, negative three, negative ten. That does not meet the rule. Sorry, I'll say because that's a good. That's, we'll come back to that one. <laughs> Over the, it. Yes, that's the rule. Joe, thank you so much for participating. Come see us for a t shirt. <laughs> thank you. Awesome. It, when I did this, now the reason I'm coming come back to Nick here because when I did this, I just kept giving larger numbers, right? And I just never actually did what Nick just did, which is actually go, you're the first one when I tried this, it's actually gone the other way. <laughs> but it actually does mean the because as humans, right, what we're trying to do is our default is we try to confirm the hypothesis we have in my head. So my initial hypothesis was, oh, two, four, eight, we're doubling the numbers. So I checked that, got this, the rule, going, oh, yes, yes, that's great. So this thing, what is this whole thing, right? So what is going on? This is experiments, actually part of this um, thing called Watson's Rule Discovery Test. Where, we prove that, where he proved that most people do not try to test the hypothesis critically. But what they try to do is they try to confirm the hypothesis. So when, what Nick did was actually try something in reverse, which was interesting because, um, as I said, most people would try to do like, a continuous numbers up. And I just I did that. <laughs> so what does this mean for us as researchers? This is an example of confirmation bias, where you have an idea what the hypothesis is. As researchers, we create a bunch of hypotheses. We go out and go, yes, it meets the hypothesis. No, it doesn't meet the hypothesis. But have we ever gone out to try to disprove our hypothesis? So this short shortcut is actually one of the most dangerous shortcuts. I fall prey to this all the time in my research, and I have to keep checking myself all the time. So 14 years of doing this stuff, and I, this is my <laughs> this one that catches me every single time. So, you know, particularly um, things like when you've got stakeholders with you, and they've got an idea what the solution is, and you go out and you find evidence going. Yep, that matches it. We're going to go ahead with this. So try to deal with this. We need to try to do things like take an opposing view. So if you go, yes, if we put this button here, we'll increase sales by this percentage. We'll try doing the opposite. Go, what happens if we do blah instead? What's the opposing view? Um, and the reason for this is that it leaves you open to new evidence. Remember, it's not about proving your hypothesis and that you're the smartest person in the room, right? It's about really using what we call in science the null hypothesis. It's just about how do we try to reject and disprove that? So hashtag, yay science for this one. Um, another thing we can do, another technique, which I'm not going to go, ah, technology, hello. <laughs> okay, we're good. Is, um, is, is this technique called analysis of competing hypotheses? I won't go through in detail, but write it down and have a look because it's one that helps you link up the evidence that you have with your hypothesis you got across. And you're going to try to get across and you're going to try to you do this critical process of um, testing hypotheses. And you're going to try to see if you can prove it wrong. So it's called Analysis of Competing Hypothesis by Richard Hewer. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Okay, so 
Oh, another thing to consider is maybe using open, more open-ended questions and lead, avoid leading questions. So in this example, you might say, hey, some people think that soft drinks are bad for you. What do you think? Right? <laughs> I've actually done that myself. Not that soft drinks, but in that research. Maybe we can try opening it up a bit more and say, hey, actually, what's your opinion about soft drinks? So other things we can do is list assumptions. This is something that I sometimes forgot, and it's come and bite me in the ass many times. So list your assumptions. Be skeptical, particularly if you do your research and everyone thinks your design is fantastic or your, your this hypothesis proven is great. Be skeptical about it. Make sure you, know, you want to see, is that actually true? Remain open to new evidence. This is really hard because when something comes along, you go, oh, that's actually it's sort of got against what the last you know, three sessions I ran. It's really hard to remain open, but you've got to keep trying. And also, consider all evidence equally. I have some people with a deal, they're going, oh, the executive said that versus the frontline staff said that. You know, obviously, the executive one you know, is more, is, has more weight. Actually, let's consider all evidence equally. And also, when you can, use multiple researchers. We all bring different perspectives into the problem. And finally, also with this, you also leave your ego by the door. Okay. Now, I'm going to move on to one of my favorite ones, which is group thinking bandwagon effects. This is something that happens when you're in a group situation. People go, oh, somebody, a whole bunch of people agreeing on this thing. I'm going to jump the bandwagon and do the same thing. So use a lot, and it happens a lot in focus groups. So I'm just going to play a quick video. So you walk into an elevator, and naturally, you turn and face the door, right? It's just what we do without even thinking. All right, in the blue T-shirt, that is Nadia. She is an innocent passerby. Has nothing to do with this. Everybody else in that elevator, they all work for Would You Fall For That. They are all in on the experiment. They are all purposefully facing the wrong way. Nadia is facing the front. You can just see the back of her head wearing the blue T-shirt. That's Nadia. She is facing the front of the elevator like a normal human being. Everybody else is facing the back. We're playing this to you in real time, no editing, as it actually happened. Okay, floor two. Rebecca gets off. Emily gets on. She also works for us. We're swapping people in and out to reinforce the behavior. Emily's acting like it's the most normal... Oh, Nadia's turned. Nadia... It... Okay, her bag is slipping off her shoulder. She's nervously playing with it. Nadia's now halfway round. Will she go any further? Emily gets off, Mike gets on. Again, Mike works for the show. Presses his button, faces the back like it's the most normal thing in the world, like he does it every day. Nadia is really feeling the pressure right now. I'm not going to see anyone else. Scott's making some small talk. He was on Celebrity Rehab, I think. Oh. Yeah. She's looking towards the back of the elevator, because everybody else is. Floor four. I love the guy. Fourth floor, Mike gets off. Lauren gets on. Lauren also works for us. She's in. Oh, and Nadia, Nadia. Nadia has gone. The fourth floor, Nadia has turned all the way around. She's looking at the back of the elevator. That is not normal human behavior. Nadia is looking at the back of the elevator purely because everybody else is. Okay, you've seen it in real time. Let's play that for you again in Fast Forward. Nadia, turning, 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 turn. <laughs> ah, conformity. 
right? Experiments, part of the conformity experiments. This is why I try to avoid doing focus groups because this kind of stuff happens. So, and what I tried to do the reason I was thinking of doing the experiment this morning in the lift, but there's only two, there's only three people of which two of us were in the lift, and I think the other lady thought I was just being weird when I faced sideways. But <laughs> we might well try that on the way down and <laughs> see what happens. So, um, yes. <laughs> So this kind of this, this kind of conformity stuff that's happening. How do we deal with it? Because focus groups, right? People, I don't know who, whether we still use it a lot nowadays. But when I was doing a lot of my research in the early days, this was kind of our key thing. It was a quick method, and consultancies love it because we can engage heaps of people in a very short amount of time. But the issues with focus groups is this kind of group thinking happening. So if you're going to have to use it, um, make sure you triangulate it with other research methods. You can hear that theme come up a lot, right? Use it with other research methods, triangulate. Um, again, I love observational research, so pop that in with there. But if you are going to use it in any form of kind of group activities and exercises, then you should use a mixture of individual and group exercises. So, for example, if you're going to ask people about certain kind of things they're going to do, actually have something written down that they can write down individually. Because people like me, who I'm actually an introvert, I know it's surprising, <laughs> in the group situations, I would actually probably prefer to sit in the corner and just write something down. Um, and then if I have to show it back, then I can say something then. But um, if I write it down, you can at least use that as a point of cross-reference later on to see what they say versus what they actually actually wrote, written down. Because I've been in situations where I've heard people tell me, oh, Ruth, we did this, and then the groups say something totally opposite, and they put up their hand and agreed with it. I was like, that's really odd. They just told me before the session <laughs> that they were doing this. So this will help deal with some of that. Um, also, use, try to avoid saying the preferences of what you're trying to find out up the front if you're doing this kind of group sessions, because people just generally try to give you evidence to back up what that is. Um, oh, also, the individual exercises. Sorry, jumping back a bit. What's really important about that is if it's particularly if you're doing a really sensitive subject or sensitive topic. So, say you ask people to, whether they want to identify as LGBTI, whatever, or you know, other kind of things, it's actually probably easier to write, do that on an individual basis. Okay, and um, and also makes it difficult for people to be open and honest, right? If they feel they have to say all this stuff in front of people, and that mixture of individual and group playbacks will actually help people do that. And something that also might be interesting to try is just give somebody the devil advocate's role. So if you're doing groups, get somebody to, to take the role to actually question um, each group's um, kind of, of assumptions. Okay. I want to talk now about the anchoring bias that happens. So anchoring bias is um, the tendency to rely too heavily or anchor onto, the, onto one piece of information when you're making decisions, usually the first one. So just say if you're walking into a shop and you see a bunch of leather jackets and you go, I really like that leather jacket. I'm going to walk over and I'm going to go have a look at the leather jacket. I'm picking up the price tag, $1,000. I like it, but not that much, I don't think. No, no, I'm going to put it down. I'm going to walk away. You walk out and the salesperson sees you and they come over. They're going, oh, that leather jacket is actually on sale today for $400. $400 was 1000 That's a great deal. I'm saving $600. I think I'm going to go buy this leather jacket. I need to splurge myself. I'm going to treat myself. I'm going to get it. And I just anchored into that first piece of information. It was $1,000. I actually thought $1,000 was way too much. The 400 is still a lot of money. Um, but because I had that comparison to make, it feels like a reasonable kind of thing to do. So in terms of research, how we do is when we're, when we're showing multiple designs, uh, concepts to our participants, we're often doing kind of you know, A, B testing or we're showing multiple things. Um, don't do what I did in my first few sessions where I showed everything in the same order, every single time. I did, here's version one, here's version two, here's version three. Next participant, here's one, here's two and three. Next participant, one, two, three, all six. Did exactly the same order. And then we're, we're, why, worried about, hey, why is the results all funny? So if we're going to deal with stuff like this, 
make sure you consider the order of your questions um, and designs very carefully. I like to start off with open questions first and then drill down. Um, look at how we actually use open-ended questions and also alternate the order in which participants are seeing information. So, for example, you're going to, you're going to show one, two, three. Maybe show one, two, three, two, three, one, three, one, two. You know, make sure we're actually alternating through. Okay, and, to, and in the last few bits, um, how am I doing for time? <laughs> okay, I'm talking, I'm trying to talk really fast or slow. I don't know, I'm getting confused. Analyzing. Um, this is my favorite bit, right? You've got to do all this research, you, you gather all this interesting data, you want, to be, you want to spend years analyzing it, not years, but you know, a long time analyzing it, but you just have a lot of time. So things start kicking in. We're, we're running out of time. So one of this is patterns. As humans, we're very good at identifying patterns. So good, and this is just an inherent thing that all of us, and it just helps us make sense of the world. Now, this tendency to find patterns, it just works so well sometimes that we sometimes find patterns that aren't actually there. And then this is actually called, um, I think called apophonia. It's, it's the name of this thing, of being able to find patterns in meaningless data. So, for example, with this one over here, does anyone see any patterns in here in this? Just yell out. <laughs> what do you see? Jesus toes. You say toes, Jesus toes. <laughs> Jesus toes. And it's a baby. A girl? Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> Man, I'm, I'm just not being a good researcher now. I? I might fall off the stage. I'm so excited. <laughs> So what's going on over here is we're finding patterns in what is essentially meaning for meaningless data. And in particular, as humans, we're very good at identifying faces. So in this case, we're thinking Marilyn Monroe, it could be Virgin Mary, Jesus, and toast. This is just toast. <laughs> but that toast on the right sold for $28,000. Actually, it's UK money, so probably more like 50, or is it not 40? I don't know. <laughs> so this kind of pattern behavior, it comes out a lot when we're doing our analysis, right? Because you get so excited, see all this data, you start seeing patterns in things. So this is also known as what we call, well, part of this is called a clustering illusion, and another advice is reporting. I'm just throwing a bonus one, because there's so much to talk about. And this happens when we're trying to, we find patterns in, in small sample sizes. We see this streak of um, particular behavior and go, oh, everyone does it like this. I'm going to extrap extrapolate it out and go, everybody else does it like this, because I can see this, this cluster of this behavior. So the problem with this is that if you have small sample sizes, because I usually just do, when you're doing short sessions, you're doing about kind of six people, right? Six, seven people at a time. That is a very, very small sample size, but... You know, we have to think about why are we using those, well, what are we trying to use that research for? I'm not trying to do a statistical analysis here of, you know, a thousand people on the street. I'm just trying to understand the why people are doing something. So we just need to keep that in mind when we're doing our, um, our analysis. And the thing about this is reporting as well. It's so easy, especially when you have a client that says, oh, we know we've got this particular outcome that we're trying to achieve. And, you, and your report has evidence that backs it up. But you sometimes want to actually left off evidence that might actually provide a contrary view because of confirmation bias, all the other biases we talked about. So how do we cater for, for this kind of problem? Uh, so an example of this is a few, many years ago, back when the government was a public servant and we were doing one of our first online services. We had this contentious thing about breadcrumbs where we thought, half the team thought breadcrumbs are really, really useful. Everyone's going to use them in our web application. And awesome. And half gone, that was stupid. 
<laughs> so, so we went out to do a bunch of usability research about a whole bunch of different things with this particular application. And sort of they forgot what the bread comes for because we had other things to worry about, like buttons that left or right align, you know, <laughs> those kind of things. Spent three months arguing about that. But um, we went out and the six people we saw all used the breadcrumbs. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Interesting. <laughs> um, and we thought, okay, so everyone obviously uses breadcrumbs. So we went out again a few months later, iterated design went out, and the next six, nobody even saw the breadcrumbs. Didn't even change the breadcrumb design. What's going on? Our oh, analysis showed that there was breadcrumbs. You know, people use breadcrumbs, and that was an example of us falling to the clustering illusion. So to deal with it, um, remember sample sizes in our kind of qualitative research. We're not dealing with small sample sizes, but we're really trying to dig down to the why. We're not trying to go 50% of people did this, 60% did that, in in this kind of case. Um, but dig down to the why. Consider the evidence equally. So remember, it's not just the ones that confirm the belief and as if you're a consultant or internal consultant, it's really hard because you've got a client who's trying to get you to prove something is correct. So we want to make sure that we can actually deal with that. Um, make sure we do collaborative analysis sessions. I love collaborative analysis sessions. We have, we're doing one here. This is a photo at the DTO. We've got a whole bunch of our team had gone out and done research across a number of weeks, and we're doing a, a joint analysis sessions. And where it's particularly useful is you bring somebody else in who's familiar with the subject matter but haven't been out in the research as well. They, they tend to question and go, oh, hold on. Well, what was that about? And that just really helps kind of try to mitigate against some of the biases and try to strive for objectivity. Because at the end of the day, I know as humans, we, you know, we want to prove ourselves right. In this case, we're just trying to you know, be objective. So, reaching the end of our talk now, we, you heard a bunch of biases which sort of go, okay, I'm, I'm now aware of these, but how vulnerable are we to these biases ourselves? So, in America, there was this... Um, Survey so that was done, and they were, I think it was at Stanford University, and they were, they were trying to work out how many, how many, how many people actually fall, down, fall to this. So they asked them, what percentage of the population would be more biased than the average person? I think the answer is obvious, 50%, because <laughs> it's average. <laughs> but when they took this question out to more than 600 people, um, the social psychologists actually found that um, it was more than 85% of the sample said that they were less biased than the average American. Now, I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Only one participant actually believed that they were more biased than the average American. So, this bonus bias thing, it's more than the seven, uh, we're talking about our bonus bias, it's the blind spot bias. It's something as researchers we have to be very careful about because um, our ability to perceive biases in others is really, really good. But finding it in ourselves can actually be quite hard. And society teaches us that biases can sound like a bad thing, and we don't want to be bad people. Well, most people don't. <laughs> I don't want to be a bad person. So you tend to go, okay, biases is bad, and I don't want to have biases. Um, but how do we you know, be aware of what we have internally? So to deal with this, um, we want to listen with an open mind. That came up yesterday, a lot of listen. You know, don't just talk, when want to listen. We also want to do things like become more rational, but less rationalizing. Because rationalizing bits where we tend to go, oh, we're going to justify confirmation bias kicks in. We want to have this thing of continuous learning. Be open to new evidence. And this is hard when you're working in a very short time frame, but be open to new and continuous learning. And always assess your method, the analysis, the research um, analysis that you're doing, and also do a lot of self-reflection about biases that we have. Because at the end of the day, we are all human, and our biases are what make us human. And this, by the way, is a photo that we took at the very first UX Australia in Canberra when it first started. It was a small group of people, a bit bigger than this. Um, but we're all human, and I love our UX family. <laughs>
So, thank you. And any questions? If you've got something. As mentioned, any questions? Thanks, Ruth. That's awesome. Um, when you start a piece of research, do you almost spend a good proportion of the start educating your client about some of these biases so that when you do then go through the process, you can start to identify or they can start to disaffiliate with the sort of biases that's coming through or being aware of it? That's a great idea. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to do that. <laughs> now, I mean, I... Um... I actually don't go through it in this kind of format. I guess we just talk about when we're doing a, at least part of the process. When we do our discovery, we'll go through the discussion guide together. We'll talk about how do we avoid the questions, how do we run sessions, because we actually get our clients to do the sessions with us. We actually step through some of the things to look out for, like body language. I've never actually called it this kind of, never used this kind of terms. But it might be interesting for them too. <laughs> yeah, a good question. And also, I've got to say, throw it, if you have any audience, you've got to answer to the questions, feel free to answer it, because you're all much smarter than I am. So I want to learn from you. <laughs> Hi. Um, I'm working with a client at the moment and they're insisting that they have uh, one or two of their people in the room while we're testing one of the users. Um, I've sort of said kind of maximum three. I'm trying to train somebody, but they also want somebody else in there while we're watching the user. How many people would you say is ideal or sort of maximum like to try and stop the skew of the results from, from the test? Like how many people would you say is too much? I think a group of this size is going to be too much. <laughs> but no, I think it, it, this is a tricky one because um, I, I break this rule a lot as well, which is I tend to have maybe another person with me, meh, another, sometimes an additional person. But the reason I have at least one other person with me because I can't facilitate and note-take and all that at the same time. I, I need to be able to concentrate on my person. Um, so the, to, when the client comes in, they're there to actually do the note-taking with me, um, taking the photos and all that kind of stuff. I sometimes have a third person, and I've been doing some research out where we're going out doing contextual inquiries, and we actually have three of us to, to do that because we're traveling, we're spending a bit of money going out, visiting a whole bunch of childcare centers, and it was really hard just taking two because we're trying to maximize the empathy building within our team. So we actually took all, we took three of us out. Um, and with that, we were very clear on, our, on a set of ground rules before we went out about you know, when you can throw in questions. As a lead facilitator, our give opportunities to the person to ask stuff, if I was confident they, can, they will ask stuff, in a way that doesn't bias. But if not, I'll get them to give me the questions, I'll do it, myself, I'll do it in, in that. But it also depends, because if you're in lab, in a lab situation through a one-way glass, it's really scary, really scary, right? Having anybody else in the room is just freaking scary. I'm scared enough as a facilitator, um, no, but a poor participant. So it really depends on the context, how friendly the setting is, um, the kind of subject matter. Because sometimes if you're doing things like paired interviewing, where you're researching with two participants, then you know, I'll have a second person with me as my co-facilitator. Um, that, and then maybe a third person. It really depends. I'm sorry to have a, a fixed answer, but really many more than that three gets hard. But also, what's the, what's the purpose? If it's a shadow, or is it to just learn? Because if you can do things like maybe stream, a live stream of your, of your interview. We've done that where we've gone out re researching and the rest of the team couldn't, we just didn't have the budget to fly everybody out. And we'll, we'll do a live stream back to the head office um, and they can just pop into Google Hangouts and just watch. And we'll let the participants know that we're doing it. Um, part of your recruitment, they, they know that this stuff will happen. Because <laughs> you're really in the room, as you're, you're really having the, the whole, the whole well, just being there is really change, starting to change our behaviour and we just have to mitigate against that. In fact, you've got another person watching. And as, a, as facilitators, we, get, we can make them feel very comfortable quite quickly. That's our job. And they should, you know, it's just part of it. Hi, but, Ruth. Yeah. Great, great. Oh, gee, that's really loud. 
Um, talk great, more. <laughs> great talk. This um, this stuff really excites me too. Just wondering, any good books or resources that you go to? Really, yes. Yes, there's actually heaps, heaps. Um, I was actually going to have a slide about it. It was too many. So what I might do is when I put these slides online, um, I'll, I'll put up a whole lot. But I know that we've got lots of people in the room who do this stuff as well. So please tweet your resources because we'd like to share and learn from each other. So we can then, I might try to collate some of that into the slides and pop it up as well. And... Hello. Um, we've learned about these biases. Um, but often I find it's really powerful to show people um, the effect of them, um, because people will tend to believe, okay, that's bias in other people, but I couldn't possibly be susceptible to that bias. Can you give us some good examples on how can we demonstrate these types of effects to others? Mm. I'm actually going to see if there's any other, any, anybody else has got stuff to share with that before I jump in, because it's some really interesting, we've got lots of really smart people in this room. Anybody want to share ideas on, on that? About, uh, about the question. So the question is, how do we help people be aware of their inherent biases? Because so, we all think, well, well, we don't have this. <laughs> I think it's always best to start with yourself and address that I have biases, and that's okay. We all do. And here are mine, and you've probably got some too. Let's have a conversation about it. I actually use examples when I'm sharing with the clients about stuff that I've done wrong. <laughs> I make a lot of mistakes oh, all the time. Even now, it's just heaps of mistakes. I'm going, oh. So at the moment, I've got a shadow with me, a shadow user researcher, but we're part of a bigger collaborative agile team. And we do a bit of self-reflection when we're doing our analysis about what we did, how, what we learned, and whether we needed to adjust. And it helps us, even though we don't use the word biases, it just helps us work out, okay, what could we be testing again? What should we explore? Where do we lead things down? And it just helps us as a group so it's not one person going, oh, you're making that mistake, but we're learning together. I think we've got time for one more. So, um, Actually, I think you just kind of answered what I wanted to ask. The minute you said that that study was done in America, I thought, oh, Americans, and there goes my bias. <laughs> and then I thought, well, you know, <laughs> you have your Americans then saying, am I less or more biased? Because they might think... Uh, Americans, you know what I mean? How do you avoid being in that like mirror that goes forever, just everybody's bias turning into a what's the truth kind of thing? Mm. And I guess you answered it by saying get a big group, you know? That, that kind of collaborative kind of analysis helps um, question the, the devil advocate's role helps that. Um, Ren yesterday talked about being aware of culture, cultural values and stuff as well. That really just helps us stay on top and just keep each other's honest about this. Because at the end of the day, we're not trying to purposely do this stuff, right? We're just inherently human, it's going to happen. Um, but I really love that kind of joint um, sessions because it really helps us go, oh, hang on, um, you know, Ruth, uh, what's going on here? Why did that happen? And it really makes you dig down and do a lot of self-reflection as a group as well. <laughs> cool. Great. I think we just started time, unfortunately. We could carry on going all morning, couldn't we? Well, thank you very much, Michael. Thank, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.